Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. As I'm sure many of you know, the Buddhist uh, stream goes back, well, at least two and a half thousand years to the, the lifetime of a Nepalese prince, Siddhartha, in the foothills of the uh, Himalayas. But his work is, is contextualised in a much longer stream, the, the Indian yogic tradition, that probably goes back another 4,000 years before that. But the particular genius of the Buddha, and certainly the, the impactful nature of the Buddha, was particularly in his understanding of how ego, this concept of ego, which we'll, which we'll talk about, is really at the root of our suffering. And when we look at suffering, you know, why do we suffer? What, what's, what's the problem of, of suffering? You know, he honed in on this, this notion of the ego uh, and you know, spent 40 years teaching on that. And in the aftermath of his death, there was a, you know, a monastic community. He set up the first monastic communities, um, first of men and then of women. And then hundreds of years later, it was, uh, the tradition was passed on orally. And then it was eventually written down in what's known as the Pali Canon. And around those teachings are formed the, what, the, what we could call the first turning of the Buddhist world. It's called the first turning of the Buddhist wheel. So nowadays we might think of the practitioners in Thailand and Burma, who largely who espouse the Theravadan school of Buddhism. <clears throat> and very simplified, uh, you could say that, those, that, that that turning of the wheel is about how do we examine ourselves and let go of the elements in our, in our makeup, in our stream of activity that cause us suffering and eventually let go of the idea of the ego altogether? How do we achieve liberation from the factors of suffering? And uh, it's, it's slightly a misrepresentation, but you could see this is we could see as individual liberation. So the practice of individual li- individual liberation. We're responsible for our own mind stream and liberating, it, liberating ourselves from the torment of, of suffering into the state of nirvana. About a thousand years after that, maybe not quite so long, the great flowering of Indian Buddhism between the, the 6th and 10th century, um, there was an extreme, extremely uh, wonderful flowering of, of thinking which is so then been gathered into what's called the Mahayana, or the second turning of the Buddhist wheel, which really expanded that into the social, in some of the, you can see it those sense. Instead of talking about individual liberation, <clears throat> they began to see, well, I can't really be liberated if you're not liberated. We can't, I can't feel truly liberated unless everybody is liberated. So there was a sense that actually of aspiring towards universal liberation. And the concept of the bodhisattva came into play. So that actually, I'm going to stay in this messy world of suffering until everybody is liberated. And then there was a a parallel concept that goes with that, which is emptiness. Which is that not only am I myself empty, you know, the ego in my own sphere disappears, but actually the way that I project the ego into the world also disappears. So this is the concept of emptiness, which is key to the second turning. And then there's the third turning, you know, the Vajrayana, which is now centred largely in Tibetan uh, thinking, 
which is not really an addition to those teachings, but is a, a path. It's a, it's a way of achieving those teachings in a particular way. So there's, there's a lot of practices associated with the Vajrayana, Tibetan um, tantric practices, which allow practitioners, it's said, to achieve this state of enlightenment in one lifetime rather than hundreds of thousands. And that uh, one of the one of the characteristics of this Vajrayana turning of the wheel is a, is a great appreciation of the non-human, the non-egoic, the, if you like, the magical non-egoic forces in the world. So hence, when you look around this room, these wonderful tankers of um, different deities, different uh, Buddhas, different uh, bodhisattvas, which are all, in some sense, a manifestation of our, our freedom, our liberated state, but in some sense are also there to help us. So there's a, a sort of magical quality to that third turning. And it's very interesting, again, if you look at the contemporary way that Buddhism is taught, or certainly perceived, you know, for, for many, many years, you know, Nobody knew what Buddhism was. It's really only the Victorians that called it Buddhism. It wasn't even called Buddhism until the Victorians coined it um, Buddhism. And uh, <clears throat> it's probably only since the 60s that in the West, or sort of in America and Europe, that there's been a presence of Buddhist teachers and uh, Buddhist, what they call Buddhist Dharma, so the teaching of the Buddha. So it's a relatively new phenomena in the in the. Western world, newer in that sense than psychoanalysis, which has been around since the 1900s. Um, and interestingly, in the current climate, there is a great deal of interest in, in Buddhism, but there's also a sort of subtle airbrushing out of certain features, just as we had with the lineage of psychoanalysis, <coughs> psychotherapy, certain features kind of dropped out of the picture. I would argue that there are certain features of the, of the Buddhist path that have also sort of dropped out of the picture. There's a great uh, emphasis on mindfulness at the moment. Everyone's mindfulness crazy. Um, I remember actually giving a talk like this in Cardiff about... Um, I can't remember what the title was. It was about mindfulness. And I did a bit of research, very ad hoc research on the train up by looking at the top 20 books on Amazon for mindfulness, and two of them were colouring in books. And John Kabat-Zinn, who's widely regarded as the, grand, I mean, the father of modern mindfulness, didn't even get in the top 20. So most of them were like the little book of calm, the little book of mindfulness, colouring in, mindful colouring in for cats. And it was, there was this huge kind of, you know, takeover, corporate takeover of mindfulness as a concept. And... Uh, this is unfortunate because mindfulness is definitely one of the it's one of the eightfold paths of, of, of Buddhism. It's, it's an essential uh, part of Buddhist practice. Nonetheless, it's not the only part. Uh, mindfulness without the, all the other bits is uh, is sort of mo certainly morally neutral, because as uh, I can't remember who it is, but somebody pointed out, you know, a sniper can be very mindful as they're about to shoot someone. Being mindful isn't, isn't, isn't enough, really. You need to have a context uh, of, within which mindfulness can play a role. So it's, it's quite interestingly that, interesting that mindfulness, and particularly the way that mindfulness has been taught, is so, uh, such a hit 
in contemporary Western consumer society. Because, for example, the other meditative um, path mentioned in the Eightfold Paths is samadhi, which is about concentration and uh, one-pointedness in jhanic states. This is not so popular because this is about saying no to lots of things and about absorbing into one point, where mindfulness in some sense is about saying yes to everything and opening to all experience and being very kind of welcoming of experience. And I think a lot of practitioners are quite drawn to that. That feels, that feels good. The, um, the element of having to say no to things is much less appealing uh, in this kind of climate and so I find it very, I find it very interesting and um, worth noting that the elements of of mindfulness and, and Buddhism that are really en vogue at the moment, and I think a lot of people quite rightly come to to meditation for, is really about self soothing, because we're all very stressed, and you know, life, modern life, is very stressful. So self soothing and a sense of opening up to our experience, a sort of warming up of our, our experience. <clears throat> What's interesting is that the, the things that get left out of that picture, in some sense, really cut to the root of, of uh, why people might find those things attractive. Chogyon Trumpa, who's a, who's a, well, started off forming Sammy Ling with Akon Rinpoche and then went off on his own path and became my teacher's teacher in America. Um, a really amazing teacher. He, f- wonderfully, he was a he was Tibetan, he came over after the Chinese invasion of Tibet um, <clears throat> and was educated at Oxford. And was a, I'm sure you, you may not know this, but he was a very controversial character, a very colourful character. Uh, and he had an extraordinary grasp of the English language. Very quirky. He would, um, he would coin these words just out of his mind, that somehow kind of wake you up. And one of the things he said that the, um, <clears throat> when you take spiritual teachings and you use them to serve self-snugness and self-delighting, then they become the most dangerous thing in the world. And this, I love this word, self-snugness. Not self-smugness, which would, would also be good, but self-snugness. Um, because in many ways, his great uh, crusade was against what he called spiritual materialism. And that's not just buying trinkets and, you know, brocade and, like, you know, dressing up like a Tibetan. That would be one aspect of it. It was much more central. It's when you use meditation, when you use Dharma, to make yourself feel better to feather your nest, to feel snug in your sense of self, then you're completely missing the point of Buddhist Dharma. Because what Buddhist Dharma is trying to do is to explode this cocoon of self that we habitually build around ourselves in the face of the anxiety of the world. being, Being alive in the world is an anxious, uncertain irritating, frustrating, worrisome business. At the very least, we're going to die. We're probably going to have a nasty disease. People that we love are going to die and leave us. The rest of the world is not predictable. There are all these factors of life which are 
deeply anxiety-evoking. And naturally, there's a part of us that doesn't want that. We don't want to be anxious or uncertain or you know, feel that we remember that we're going to die or any of those things. So we wrap ourselves up in this cocoon of safety. And back in the day, that was, you know, that was quite difficult because, you know, but certainly in the Buddha's day, there was a lot of death around. There was a lot of you know, illness. People didn't live so long. But spin forward two and a half thousand years. Now we can get our food you know, brought in by an Amazon drone and dropped outside. We can you know, have our sex life conducted over the internet. All our intimate relationships are done by text. Everything we need can be manufactured within the cocoon. We don't need... We can minimise all the disturbing factors. But this leads, paradoxically, we think this is going to minimise our anxiety, but being wrapped in this cocoon, what Trumper calls the cocoon, actually just increases our paranoia because we're then sealed off from the real world. We're sealed off from the reality of the people around us and the reflections of real people, real events, the real energy of life. Is, is removed and we were left stagnant inside this cocoon, going crazy, or at the very least going paranoid. And this is the you know Trumper explains this very brilliantly as the kind of the fundamental motor of egoic madness, samsaric madness, what he calls, why we go crazy, why we suffer. And he counters this with this idea of basic sanity. That we need to address, we need to become sane again, which actually mean, means tearing down the cocoon, letting ourselves be vulnerable and soft, and hurt and feel things, feel anxiety and feel all the negative stuff. And of course, this goes down like a bucket of sick to most people. Because like, God, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to feel stuff? Why would I want to be anxious? Why, this is, these are terrible things. And in the contemporary uh, consumer world that most of us belong to, all of us belong to, this is the very opposite of what we are trying to do. Everything that we do is trying to stop those things intruding into our cocoon. Thank you for listening and please do join us again for more podcasts from MindSprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org. That's mind-springs.org.